mentioned most frequently or most emphatically from God. And really this is a series about what does God want for his church? We do a lot of things here at our church and we have a lot of goals and, and we're reaching for things and we come and we participate in these things. But, but what is God after? What is his vision for his people? What is his vision for his church? And we've mentioned four different commands so far. These are what we're calling core commands, the things that show up over and over and over and over again. So core command number one was that we would be close and clean worshipers, that we would be these people that love God with all of our hearts. And because we love God, we keep his commandments and we're killing off the sin in our lives. Core command number two was the idea of being a spirit-filled missionary that God wants us to evangelize and to disciple people in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he wants our lives and our lips to bear witness of him and his glory and his gospel. Core command number three was the idea that we would be loving family members, that we would have a love and a unity that is so sacrificial and so tremendous that even the world looks and says, man, I want some of that. That's unique, that it's magnetic, that we love each other deeply. Core command number four that we looked at last week was that we would be gospel-centered students, that we would be these people that are committed to the scriptures, that we want to study, we want to learn, we want to grow, we want to continue in the word, because after all, it's there in the word that you find the plan of salvation that is through faith in Jesus Christ. So we've looked at a lot already, and this morning I want to give you core command number five. This command is actually mentioned a third most frequently, best I could count, this is mentioned third most frequently behind love God and, and love others, basically. And this one may surprise you a bit. I, I will be honest and say that it surprised me a bit as I just tried to look and say, what did God command often? This one just jumps off the pages of Scripture all over the place. And I knew it was there, but I just didn't know how heavy it was there. So here is core command number five. You ready for it? It's that we would be suffering sojourners. And I want to read 1 Peter chapter number 4 to give you a glimpse into what this means to be a suffering sojourner, that God would call us as his church, as his people into this. So look at 1 Peter chapter number 4, and let's start with verse number 12. It says this, it says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but Rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he's evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing, as unto a faithful creator. You see the commands that are mentioned there? These aren't suggestions. This isn't homespun wisdom. There are these commands. Don't be weirded out when suffering comes. Don't think it's strange. Rejoice in your suffering. That's a command. When suffering comes, commit yourself to God. Now, I'm here to suggest to you this morning 
that God expects you, God expects me to be a suffering sojourner just as much as he expects us to be a gospel-centered student. That we probably would say a gospel-centered student, we should know the word, we should study it, we should want to take it in, we should want to imbibe it. Most of you would, would probably say, I've been around church, yeah, I agree with that. That's, I, I kind of knew that. But I don't meet many Christians that, that say, you know what, one of God's expectations for my life, part of his plan for the church, part of his plan for me, is that we would be sufferers, that we would be suffering sojourners. What does this mean? I, I want to help you this morning to look at this and say, if that's true, that this should be us, and it is true, then how would we grow in this? How would we develop this? What attitudes, what behavior should come out of us as God's people if this was going to be part and parcel of who we were? There's a lot that this text says, but really I think there's five things this text says that tells us how to be a suffering sojourner. And I chose this text because this is a beautiful primer on what it means to suffer for Jesus. And there, you could say there's more than this in the rest of Scripture, but really the core of what you need to know is all contained right here in 1 Peter chapter number 4. So let's, let's take it in turn. First thing you need to know is this. Don't be surprised. This is what verse number 12 told us. It said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. So it's saying, don't think that it's strange. Don't be surprised. Don't say, well, that's weird. What's weird? When the fiery trial comes, when the suffering comes, what's, what's a fiery trial? What's suffering? Suffering, simply put, is any time that you obey or trust God and it costs you dearly. That could come up in a variety of situations. That could come up with the unbelieving world that persecutes you. That could come up with physical hostility. That could come with slander. That could be your own family. That could be in the workplace. There's a variety of applications, but really suffering or a fiery trial is any time that you obey God that you trust God, and because you do that, it's going to cost you and cost you dearly. And what this text is saying and what many other places in Scripture tell us very plainly is that you are going to go through pain. You are going to suffer. You're going to be tested. The fiery trials will come. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Now, this is a fantastically wise place to start because if you have suffering come into your life and it catches you off guard, if the fiery trial comes to you and you say, how could this happen to me? I mean, I, I thought it was a good person. Doesn't God love me? How could this be? If that happens to you, your battleship has sunk already. You've already misplayed the ball. An, an, easy, an easy out rolled right under your mitt and now it's going to turn into a double. If, if you are surprised when suffering comes, then you, all, you are already five steps behind where you should be, and you're not going to be able to handle the suffering. And I think that you can see this in the life of Jesus so beautifully. Look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Look at him suffer. I mean, he is in the fiery trial. Here is Jesus who has a good friend betray him, who knows that the cross is, is coming, whose soul, he says, is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Jesus says, I feel like I'm about to die. His friends are there with him. He says, I just want some company. And they can't even stay awake with him. They can't even keep him company. Here he is in a tremendous amount of suffering. Here he is. He's in the dust. But he's not surprised. He knows how it works. He knows what the plan is. 
He knows that this was going to be required of him. He knows that. And you've got to know the same. You've got to know what's coming. You've got to know how it works. You've got to know what, the, what part of God's plan for your life is. And while most of us don't get giddy about this or really love this, the reality is God has told us very plainly that because he suffered, so too we will suffer. And that's part of his plan. That, that's, that's part of the way it goes. So don't be surprised. Secondly, embrace the high leverage opportunity. If you've ever attempted to use a pry bar to pry something loose, or you've ever used a ratchet and socket or a wrench to try to break loose a, a bolt that was rusty or was stuck, then you know exactly what high leverage is. You know when you're trying to pry that thing loose, or you're trying to break that bolt loose, that you want to get a handle that is as long as you possibly can. And you want that long handle because that long handle gives you high leverage. That high leverage allows you to move the object far greater than you would have been able to if you just had this, this short little handle. And what the scriptures teach is that fiery trials are suffering. Really, they are these long-handled, high-leverage opportunities to move out of your lives things that never would have been moved out of your life otherwise. That There, there are certain aspects of your character that can be developed. There, there's certain maturing that you can do in Jesus that you can do in a short-handled way. You can just, you know, be around other believers or you can pray or you can read your Bible. But there are some things in your life that will not be moved except for the high-leverage, long-handled, fiery trials that are going to come at you. This is what verses 13 and 14 say plainly. It says, don't be surprised, but then verse 13, but rejoice Inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. That's saying rejoice because there's going to be a glory reveal here. Verse 14, if you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he's evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Now, what this is saying is rejoice, be happy in these moments. This is not saying be happy because suffering came and you just love suffering. It, to be clear, it's not saying be a masochist. It's not saying just want pain in your life just for the fun of it, that you should just want to be in trials or suffering, or that somehow you should hurt yourself or put yourself in that. But it's not saying that. But it is saying that while you're in the middle of the fiery trial, that you can actually rejoice, you can actually be happy. Why? Because it's going to do the same thing for you that it did in Jesus that Jesus actually had suffering and it gave him a name that was above every name. Jesus had sufferings that in when it's all said and done, they were redemptive. Jesus had suffering and because of it, he was exalted. So you walk in that pattern. You follow in his footsteps. You rejoice because good will come out of this. This will prove to be profitable in your life. This will prove to give glory to God. This will be something that is good for him and for you if you can view it that way. If you cannot be surprised at it, but understand that it will accomplish something in your life. And you see this metaphorically all through the scripture. You see these, these word pictures of what suffering is. You see that Suffering is pictured to us here and in other places as a refiner's fire, as this metal that's put into the furnace and the dross or the impurities are burned off and therefore a purer vessel comes forth out of the fiery trial, out of the fire. You find that the scriptures teach us that suffering is kind of like a coach and an athlete, that a coach will actually 
push the athlete, will cause pain in the muscles of the athlete, will put him through the paces. Why? So that he can be better. You find it compared to a vine dresser with a vine, that a good gardener comes along to a vine and he, he cuts it. There's, there's pretty little br- branches laying all over the ground. The vine is bleeding, and you look at that and say, man, that was cruel. That was, what did you do to that? But a good gardener knows that that would have been a loss to keep, so I can cut that off. So why? So that growth can happen. You find this even compared to parents with children. If you're a parent, you get this. You know that for your children, you try to teach them many things. You try to teach them not to have a fairness complex. You try to teach them to have patience. You try to teach them delayed gratification. Your goal for them is that you would bring them into maturity, that you would bring them into adulthood. And what do those children do as you try to teach them, as you try to mature them, as you try to push them? They accuse you of being cruel constantly, don't they? Mom, you, you don't even understand. Dad, what, why, do, why do you always want to make it so tough on me? Why don't you ever want me to have any fun? What, what are they doing? They're ceasing to understand that your heart is to grow them and help them and that this is good for them. It's the same thing with our Heavenly Father. James would say almost an identical thing in James chapter number 1 where he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. When you fall into all these kinds of temptations, count it joy. Why? Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, and let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. What that is saying, when it's all said and done, is that this temptation and this trial is going to produce a maturity in you, and you will be lacking less because of it. What he's saying is that this is a high leverage opportunity. This will grow you. This will mature you. And a Christian, rightly oriented, can make use of the suffering so that he comes out of the suffering, so that she comes out of the suffering, pure, refined, matured, more like Jesus when it's all said and done. But then you have to know, point number three, keep obeying. Don't be surprised. Embrace the high leverage opportunity and keep obeying. Verses 15 and 16 say it this way. It says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. What those verses are saying is that there's a right way and a wrong way to do the suffering stuff. Saying there's a right way, verse number 16, the right way is as a Christian, that you're not ashamed, that you have a clear conscience, that you, that you actually are still focused on glorifying God. Verse number 15, there's a wrong way to do this, and it says it's as an evildoer. And he mentions a few examples of what an evildoer may be. It could be a murderer, that's big, could be a thief, kind of big, could be gossip. Oh, that seems small, we do that a lot, don't we? You name it. Sin is the right way as a Christian with good conscience, glorifying God. There's a wrong way as an evildoer with with sin in your life. And to, to put it another way, what he's saying is one of the most important things to do in suffering is actually just to obey to actually just keep going and keep living a Christian life. And it's very easy, very easy when a trial comes, when hard times come, when suffering comes, when the knife starts to fall in the branches, as it were, for you to stop praying, for you to stop reading your Bible, for you to stop going to church, for you to stop tuning in, for you, for you to stop uh, wanting to, to get in your group and be with other believers. It's very easy to stop in those moments, to turn your back on God, 
It's very easy to embrace sins of escape. These sins that actually give you a, a brief temporary high. You know they're wrong, but they make you feel good in the moment. It's very easy to do that. And what he's saying is, when you're suffering, keep obeying. Don't do it that way. Don't, don't embrace the gossip. Don't embrace the wrong. Don't embrace the sin. No, keep on as a Christian, clear conscience, glorifying God. Listen, if, when you go into surgery, they give you anesthesia. You know why they give you anesthesia? You know why at the Rerick Surgical Center that we just highlighted here this last week that they administered anesthesia to people? Because the surgeon cannot perform a successful operation unless the patient holds still. If the patient is on the table wiggling all over the place, saying, stop, 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 no, I don't want to do it, grabbing the surgeon's hand, trying to yank it, the surgeon, no matter how skilled they are, will never be successful. When you come into a trial, when God is wanting to do some spiritual surgery on you, and he's wanting to take suffering as high leverage to move some things out of your life, to cut some things out of your heart that should not be there, if you're wiggling all over the table and you can't hold still, obedience is to hold still, if you're wiggling all over the place, he'll never be able to accomplish his work, his work the way that he wants to, the way he intends for you, the way that will be good for you, the way that will bring him glory. So when suffering comes, you, you need to know you can't do it on your own, but in his power, obey, follow. Don't give up. Don't give in. Even if you feel like you're getting nothing out of your Bible reading, keep doing it. Even if you feel like your prayer life is dead and, and there's a ceiling and, and, and that you're not getting a hold of God, keep praying. Even if you feel like church is just going through the motions, keep coming. Obey. Be faithful. Fourthly, see the future. There's these verses that are next, verses 17 and 18, that I admit at first glance were a head-scratcher to me. They just seemed disjointed in the passage, but the more I understood them and studied them, the more beautiful they became. Look at verse number 17. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? You say, what in the world does that mean? What is he talking about? What Peter is doing is he's reaching back into the Old Testament, and he's basically, more or less, paraphrasing Ezekiel 9, but especially Malachi chapter number 3. And Malachi chapter number 3 says that the Lord is going to come to his temple, to his house, and there he is going to refine and purify his people, and then the offerings will be acceptable. And Peter is referencing that, he's alluding back to that scripture reference, and he's saying right now is the time, the time has come where this is happening, where the refiner's fire that the Old Testament prophets spoke about that would happen first at the people of God, that is what is happening. And he tells us, I want you to know this because I want you to be able to face difficulties this way, that this is going to, once again, be high leverage and refine you, but also... I want you to know that what unbelievers face compared to what you face is absolutely terrifying. What you face as a Christian in your fiery trial will be difficult. What they face is terrifying. You see that at the end of verses 17 and 18? What shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Verse number 18, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? What Peter knows is this, that a lot of the suffering that Christians will endure will be from the hands, the lips, the hearts of an unbelieving world. 
people that don't get what Christians are about, what, what they're for, don't understand them. Maybe they do understand them a bit, but they just they don't like it. They're hostile. And he knows that persecution will come. He knows that, that slander will come. He knows that their good will be evil spoken of. He knows this. And what, what he's saying is you're going to be tempted to let bitterness creep in. You're going to be tempted to let malice creep in. You're going to be tempted to let anger creep in. So how in the world can you not take vengeance in your own hands when they, when they cause evil to come your way because of your good? How in the world can you let go of the wrath? Well, according to this and according to Romans 12 and in other places in Scripture, you have to do this by remembering, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. You have to say, you know what, I'm not the judge and the mediator of all this. God will hand it out. What he's saying, more or less, is I want you to see your future, that this will be good for you when you suffer, but I want you to see their future, that if you think that they're getting away with everything, they're not. They're storing up everything. This isn't something that we glory in or that that we want, but it is something that can help our hearts to know that if someone comes and they martyr a Christian or they persecute Christians, are we supposed to do eye for eye? Are we supposed to take up the sword? Are we supposed to get back at them? And what he's saying is, no, you actually can have a heart that is at peace and you can rejoice even in these moments. You could read Hebrews chapter number 10 to see even a clearer description of this, of Christians who were made gazing stocks, who were looked at as just weird and bizarre, who came to faith. And and the author of Hebrews is very clear that all of a sudden these trials and this persecution started to come their way. And the author of Hebrews tells them that this is actually going to be good for you. Paul would say in Corinthians that the suffering is going to produce an eternal weight of glory. So what you have, simply put, is that a focus on what will be for you and even a focus on what will be for them is wildly powerful for you today. It's powerful for you to be able to get through the suffering. Perhaps the best illustration I ever heard on this, I heard years and years ago in a sermon. And the illustration went this way. So there's two women, and they, they're almost identical. They're not twins, but, but they are the same age, they're the same weight. They both have two kids. Uh, they both are kind of the same uh, uh, socioeconomic status. And they're given a job each, and they're given the same job. It's a boring, tedious, hard job, and it's in conditions that are drab and boring and tedious. But they're both given the same conditions and the same job. And they have to work 80 hours a week. They have no vacation pay, and they have to work it for a year. And one woman is told at the end of one year, at the end of 80 hours a week for a year, you will get $15,000. The other woman is told, at the end of one year, you will get $15 million. Now, those two women will experience the same day. They will have the same work. They will have the same conditions. They'll be the same age. They'll be the same body type. They'll they'll experience the same day, but they will experience the day in an entirely different way. One who only has $15,000 coming at the end of the year is going to want to complain, going to not want to show up, going to want to quit constantly, just, just, just really it sucks the life out of her. It's a drain to go to work. The other woman is going to whistle while she works. She's going to have joy. Sure, it's tough. It's just as tough as it is for her. But internally, something is happening. She's able to get through the day with power. Why? How? Because she's thinking about how she's going to spend $15 million. The point is this, what you believe about your future 
will impact how you experience today. How you see the future and what something's going to accomplish for you if there are eternal rewards, if there is an eternity, if there is a heaven, if this is going to produce glory in you, how you view the future is going to wildly impact how you work through today. It controls how you experience the, the present. Now stop and think for just, a, for just a minute. When suffering comes your way, do you believe? Do you believe it's high leverage? Do you believe it's good for you? Do you believe that it will produce, as Paul said, an eternal weight of glory? Do you believe that it actually will produce an enduring substance? Do you believe that about the future? Do you have that hope? Because if you don't, if you don't see that future, then the suffering is going to be drab and tough, and you're going to want to call it quits left and right. You have to have the hope of the future. You have to. Lastly, commit yourself to God. Don't be surprised. Embrace the high leverage opportunity. Keep obeying. See the future, and then commit yourself to God. Verse number 19 says this. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. What does it mean to commit the keeping of your soul? I would put it this way. Ever commit the keeping of your money to someone? Most all of us have. Most all of us have committed the keeping of our money to a bank in the form of a deposit at one point in time. Why would we commit the keeping of our money that's valuable to us? Why would we commit it to them and deposit it with them? Because we believe that they're trustworthy. We believe we can show up the next day, the next week, the next year, and we can get that money back. We believe that it's federally insured by the government up to a certain point and that it's backed even if, they, if something would go awry inside of their bank. We trust them, so we commit our money to them. This is why my mamaw who was born right at the very end of the Great Depression, never had a bank account because she saw people in the Great Depression that had put their money in banks, but then they never were able to get it back out. So she, she never had a bank account, and she just did cash her whole life. She, she never messed with it. What this is saying is that in the same way you would deposit your money with the bank, because you trust it, deposit yourself with God because you trust him. Because it says it ends. He's faithful, isn't he? He's the creator, isn't he? He has all the power, doesn't he? He's, he's the one that has the wisdom to know what should be done. He has the wisdom to know if that trial is good for your life or not. He has wisdom that's far beyond yours. So commit yourself. Deposit yourself with God. I would add to this what the scriptures teach us over and over again, that you should commit yourself to him. Also because he understands your pain. He understands your suffering. Christianity is the only religion that has a God who suffers, a God who actually puts himself on the hook of suffering, that Jesus, God in the flesh, he knew what it was like to, to suffer socially, to have rejection, to have loneliness, to have betrayal, to have isolation. He knows what it's like to suffer physically. He was tormented more than we could understand. He knows what it's like to suffer even spiritually. There's a tremendous amount of alienation that happens at the cross as he's cut off from his father in ways that we never will be able to comprehend. And what does Jesus do in the middle of the suffering? 1 Peter 2 tells us, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. How? Why? How could you do this, Jesus? Because he committed himself to him that judges righteously. You have a pattern in Jesus of committing yourself to God Here's, here's God, the only one, the only one 
that when you suffer, you can go to him and say, this is tough, I want to quit, what good is this doing, I don't understand. And he can say, I know what you mean. I've been there, I felt that. If you can't commit yourself to him, who in the world can you commit yourself to? Yourself? You think you're more trustworthy than God? Them? Your, your workplace, your boss, your career? What, what are you going to trust in? Where are you going to put your hope? Where are you going to deposit yourself? This is saying you have no better option in the whole world than God. So commit yourself to him. Put yourself in his hands because he, re- he really has the wisdom. He knows what it's like. Now let me take just my last few moments and commend some of you and challenge some of you. First of all, I want to commend some of you because I know that, that for many of you, the last six months, the last year, maybe in the last two or three years, have been filled with a tremendous amount of fiery trials. Some of you are on the other side of the camera here this morning and you are sitting there and you're doing inventory of your mind of, of all the hard times and the, and the hardship that has come your way. But many of you have lived it out in some beautiful ways. That suffering has come, that hard time has come, you've dealt with loss, you've dealt with grief, you've dealt with the pain and the confusion, and you've been faithful nevertheless in the hard time. You, you kept obeying. You've kept your eyes on eternity. You've known that on the far side of this suffering, that something is going to be moved out of my heart and out of my life, and I will be more fruitful. I will grow more. I will be more like Jesus because of this. And, and you've, you've taken it to heart, and you've handled suffering well. I want to, I honestly, I want to commend you, and I want to tell you, keep it up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Some of you, I want to challenge you because tough times have come your way physically, financially, relationally, whatever it is over the last year. And it surprised the fire out of you. Whether you just never thought that this was something that would come your way or that was just for the Christians of old or you bought into a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel or whatever it is, somehow it, it, it surprised you. Some of you, honestly, are so focused on high standards of living, are so focused on comfort that you, you shun and you stiff arm anything that is tough. Any sort of, of bleeding for the mission, of being committed to a cause that's going to cost you. And you've, you've let go, you've stopped, you've, you've, you've felt it yourself that you've waffled in the wind a little bit. I want to challenge you. Look, look at this text. Know that this is supposed to be part of your Christian walk. It just is. It just is. And look at this and say, I want that to be me. I want to put my eyes up. I want to be focused on eternity. I don't want to be surprised by this. I, I want to recognize I'm, I'm living as a citizen of God's kingdom. I want to live for him. I want to deposit myself into his loving, wise care, even if that means that I will obey him and trust him and it costs me dearly. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we stop right now. And we take a time out and we tell you that we want to learn from your word. Lord, I'm not sure how many Christians, if we took a poll, would say that you really expect them to be a suffering sojourner. That they would understand that it's your basic expectation that in this life there's going to be suffering, persecution, hard times, things that cost us because we love and obey you. But that's going to be for our good, that's going to be for your glory, that's going to move things out of our hearts. I don't know how many people would recognize that, Lord, but I pray this morning that whoever is listening to this, that 
a light bulb would come on that we would understand that this was part of your plan for us. That we wouldn't be surprised by it, that we wouldn't be taken back by it, but that we would embrace it in the right ways. Not as masochists, but Lord, as, as people that, that understand the good that can come. And Lord, I pray that every single person who calls Harvest Baptist Church their home, I pray that they would deposit themselves into you. That they would say, Lord, here I am, I trust you. I give myself to you. Lord, I pray that every single person, that we would have our eyes on eternity, that we would see the future, that that would help us today as we go through through today, this week, this month, that that future hope would, would fuel and would motivate us. Lord, use this, please. We ask in a powerful way in our lives. Lord, I want to be the first to say the prayer of, Lord, lead us not into temptation. So, God, I'm, I'm not asking for a trial. I'm not asking for suffering. I'm not saying, please, 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 will, will you cause pain in my life? Lead us not into temptation. But, Lord, at the same time, nevertheless, thy will. Lord, thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. If suffering's what you have on the agenda, if it's on the docket, if it's the plan, then we tell you thank you. And we'll, we'll joy in it. We'll be happy in it because we know that you're using it for, for a good purpose. Lord, may we grow in this, I pray in Jesus' name. Church, I want to let you know two things.